You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Uh, ben, here we are on a Tuesday, owing to the sickly nature of one of my children. But we're getting it done. A little unusual. Moving around the time a little bit. We're going to try to knock this out. Gonna, that means we'll push breaking news in the MMA world back to Wednesday, right? I was going to say, so far for a Tuesday, it seems quiet. Perhaps even too quiet. Too quiet. But... uh Let's stop dancing around the point here, man. You got a Band-Aid on your, on your face? Yeah. Uh, sporting a black eye? A couple more on my, my palms one, there. One large Band-Aid on each palm? Knuckles all skinned up? You should see, you should see the road rash up my back, up my shoulder. If that's, if that's your end game, is to get me to take my shirt off. Is that what you're going for here? We've been doing this show a long time. <laughs> there's, there's no secrets here. Yeah. What happened? Bike you accident. Have, you must have taken a terrible spill. It was not a good spill. It was pretty it was bad as bad a bike accident as I've had since childhood, probably. Well, set the scene. Where where are we at here? You must have been cruising down a hill. I was cruising down the hill, coming back to my house. You know, I live on a up on a hill, and if you ride a little bit extra up the hill, then you get to have a, a lot of fun coming down. Okay, wait to a the second. House. So this was extracurricular. Kind of, yeah, uh, but it was also kind of getting dark, and I was going way too fast down the hill, took the turn a little too wide, and in the darkness did not see a giant pothole, as you know, around Missoula there are bound to be, and hit it just going full speed as I was turning at pretty much exactly the wrong angle and timing, and uh, next thing I know, face was in the street, man. Well, that sounds like it's smarts, but I'm going to point out two things about this story. Uh, you said it was dark outside? Yeah, it's getting dark. So where were you coming from? I was coming from nowhere. I was riding my bike. I was, it was Sunday night after Game of Thrones. I go for a little bike well, you ride. you needed to cool off. Well, some, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I got a little worked up during Game of Thrones. Uh, and sometimes in the cool of the evening, I like to ride my bike, but this time rode a little longer than I thought I would, end up coming home as it's starting to get dark. I have a light on my bike, but it sucks. And uh, yeah, just hit that pothole wrong. Luckily, I was like, right down the street from my house when it happened. But it's like the whole walk back to my house, I'm just thinking, how bad do I look right now? Because I got no clue. I know it feels pretty bad, but is it going to be one of those things where once you finally look in the mirror, you're like, oh, that's not so bad. And it was kind of the opposite of that, as you see. Well, I don't want to. I mean, maybe we want to wait until the statute of limitations is up. But would you describe yourself as clear-headed during the, the time of this accident? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right up until my head hit the pavement. And then I was not so clear-headed. I'll be honest with you. Also... Even though I own a helmet, was not wearing it because I'm a complete idiot. But uh, I guess that'll teach me. Another new sponsor alert, and I know this one is going to be near and dear to your heart, Ben. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is presented by Receptra Naturals. Oh, yeah. Receptra Naturals provides premium, pure, CBD-rich hemp extracts, specially formated, formulated for athletes and fitness enthusiasts. As some of our listeners probably already know, CBD is patented by the U.S. government as a neuroprotectant, an anti-inflammatory, and an antioxidant, and it can have a host of positive 
positive effects on the body, including improving blood flow to the brain uh, and body to keep you focused and sharp and confident for your every move. Uh, it can also help protect your brain from repetitive impacts that can sometimes lead to long-term complications, which obviously is of particular interest in combat sports. Uh, and the natural anti-inflammatory properties of CBD will speed your recovery process. All stuff that sounds pretty good both to athletes and a couple of podcast hosts who are damn near 40 years old at this point. Sounds particularly good to this podcast host considering his recent uh, incidents. Now you can say goodbye to stiffness and soreness after long days training. Receptra Naturals has worked with a bunch of MMA luminaries, including UFC Hall of Famer Boss Rutten, who says, and I think you'll agree this is a very Boss Rutten quote right here, I can train really hard when using Receptra. I push myself harder and I look better now than when I was fighting. It's crazy! You can hear him, right? You can just hear the I was boss. hoping we would get a Boss Rudin impression yeah. out of you. Receptor Naturals also works with Bellator's Joe Warren and is dedicated to supporting mixed martial artists at all levels, from hobbyists, amateurs, to professionally contracted fighters. Receptor Naturals is in your corner. Receptor Naturals has an active lifestyle line of products featuring three hemp extracts, Active, Elite, and Pro, each with a different strength and a unique blend of essential fatty acids like MCT oil, grapeseed oil, and avocado oil, as well as turmeric for additional anti-inflammatory benefits. They'll sponsor the show a few times this summer and fall, and by the next time we talk about them, we hope to have some samples in hand and perhaps to have even conducted some personal research into the topic. So we'll report back on that. If you're interested in what Receptra Naturals has to offer right now, just go to the website, ReceptraNaturals.com, and learn about the products, see what's on offer, and place an order today. I'm going to get on a little bit of that. I'll let you know how it works out for me. We got music again this week from our colleague in the MMA media, Eric Fontanez. You can find his writing over at BloodyElbow.com, and if you like what you hear in your ear holes, you can find more of his music over at SoundCloud.com slash Eric Fontanez. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, we all breathed a huge sigh of relief Friday afternoon that all this silliness between Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather was finally over. And then we remembered it's still six weeks before they fight. And in round number two, who's laughing about those Santiago Ponzinibbio fight kits now? And in round number three, full disclosure, when I looked at my calendar last week and saw that I'd written down the main event for UFC on Fox 25 was Chris Weidman versus Kelvin Gastelum, the first thing I thought was, well, that must have been canceled by now, right? Nope. As of right now, the fight is still on and we're going to talk about it. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Gabe Dirt. He writes, So they've gone and stuck that firecracker, cra firecracker of a fighter, Justin Gaethje, on the damn tough. The kid's on a roll, man. Just let him go. Wasting that full head of steam on that worn-out old TV show is just a sin, man. Uh, at least his brain will get a rest. So, Ben, yeah. we, we talked about this last week a little bit, about how we weren't sure if... Uh, a coaching stint on the Ultimate Fighter is quite the launch pad that the UFC expects it to be for these young fighters. And you brought up what I thought was a good point, saying that coaching stints on tough actually make more sense for older fighters uh, who might need a little bit of a break and people that are actually uh, interested in coaching and may or may not need a little bit of a, uh, a recharge or a little bit of recharge in publicity uh, to get themselves hot again. Uh, now that we know that Justin Gaethje and Eddie Alvarez are for sure cast on what I believe is Tough 26, right? 
that coaches sounds about on right. Tough 26. Uh, what's your reaction here? Well, I think the last line of this, at least his brain will get a rest. Maybe that's the way to look at it. Because after that fight uh, against Michael Johnson, you know, we talked about how many of those can you really do. You definitely can't do a whole bunch of them in a short span of time. So giving him a break, maybe not the worst thing. You know, it's not going to get me to sit through another season of Tough, as I'm sure will probably be the case for you as well. Uh, it feels like we've just seen everything there is to see there. Maybe the the few hardcore people who are still watching weekly episodes of Tough will feel like they get to know a little bit more about Justin Gaethje. Hopefully that's not a bad thing, uh, as it has been for some fighters in the past. Really, if you tell me Justin Gaethje is going to coach Tough, what I hear is Trevor Whitman's going to coach Tough, um, which, you know, the Tough guys could do a whole lot worse than that. Uh, but, yeah, if it just means... A, time off and a, and a build up to a fight as long as it doesn't get cursed by the usual tough devils that make sure the coaches never actually make it to the fight um see for example last season then fine i i'm okay with it but i understand what the, the feeling that you get when guys coming off a big win everybody's excited about them and then the ufc feels like it's doing you a favor when it says and now he'll coach tough and the rest of us just hear uh great that means we can be guaranteed we won't see him for a few months right and like you said with the tough curse it's almost a guarantee that we won't actually get to see him fight eddie alvarez which would be a real uh uh crackerjack of a fight i think we can all agree and we can as you said only hope that the tough curse skips this one and gives the people what they want to hear or what they want to see uh I guess I'm kind of with you. I'm I'm hoping that this was sort of a calculated move on Justin Gaethje's part, that he came into the UFC and got the big win over Michael Johnson in his debut, uh, kind of uh, reversed the curse of uh, champions from other organizations coming in and immediately dropping their fight and, and then having to build themselves back up. So we got over that hump. Now maybe uh, he gets the chance to let his body rest a little bit, gets a chance to be a little bit more... Uh, selective about the next fight he would take here against Eddie Alvarez and, and get a full training camp, prepare for it. So I don't hate it, but, uh, but you're also right that uh, probably the majority of hardcore MMA fans that have, that feel as though we've already been through the ringer with the ultimate fighter. I don't know that there's anything they could do at this point to get us to actually tune in. Well, yeah. And you don't really need to sell me with weeks worth of hype about Justin Gaethje versus Eddie Alvarez, just tell me it's happening and get out of the way. Yeah, just give you a date and a time and make sure that the doors are unlocked. There you right? go. I'll be there. Next question this week comes to us from Brian Mills. He writes, So Galore Bofando out here throwing motherfuckers headfirst into oblivion. You guys into that? Yep. Brian Mills, you know we're into that. Into it. So, uh, yeah, Galore Bofando goes out there this past weekend. Uh, gets the big welterweight win over Charlie Ward. Uh, this is one of those cases where you know you're on a preliminary card of a fight night event from overseas because one dude is like three and two and the other dude is four and two. So uh, you're getting guys that you could argue maybe they're rushed to the UFC, uh, but Bofondo goes out there uh, looking like he's going to turn into a human highlight reel and does in fact throw Charlie Ward straight on his head and then finishes him off with... Uh, some hammer fists slash slash punches, which, as as Brian Mills points out here, if you're trying to be one of the co-main event podcasts guys, good start. Yeah, especially uh, Tim Boach-esque, some might say, about this one. And I know that's your guy. Are we looking at a, like, bofondo.tv style uh, rejuvenation for you as webmaster? 
Maybe I could even become a black belt in Beau Fondo. <laughs> there we go. Think? See, now, now we're getting somewhere. Just marketing opportunities everywhere. Bofon, don't think you're going to screw around and miss the boat on this one, huh? Wow, okay, well, I feel like we're already stretching a little bit. Well, you know what? They're not all going to be winners, man. Let's we'll just maybe workshop that one a okay. little bit more. Okay, all right. This was so impressive, by the way, from Galore Bofondo that we had people on Twitter hitting us up saying, like, preemptively calling him as their guy. <laughs> right. For, for, Basically, like, hands off. For the record, we can all have some of the same guys. It's, it's, not, it's not a competition. Yeah. There's plenty of Galore Bofondo to go around. <laughs> That's right. We can all kind of join in on having a guy here, but that is a good sign for him. Now it'll be interesting, though, to see what do you do with him next if you're the UFC, because you're right that if you're doing, you're showing out on the uh, prelim portion of a Sunday afternoon event from Scotland, it's maybe not exactly the level of competition you will see at, say, a UFC pay-per-view event. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where we go next from here. Well, you would think because of the kind of freak nature of the headfirst slam to the canvas, that this was, was kind of a one-shot deal for Bofondo. Although uh, I think you could tell just from the like two minutes and 10 seconds that you got to see of him out there that that this is probably a guy who prides himself on being an exciting fighter. And if you're going to get that kind of stoppage on this card, I would think that that, that would open some eyes uh, to people in the UFC that they'll probably uh, uh, not give him like the highest profile booking in the world, but I think we will definitely hear more. Yeah. From Galore Bofondo. I Bofond don't disagree. One of my favorite desserts also. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Peter Muir. He writes, so UFC fight night in Glasgow had wrapped up now, and it's fair to say it wasn't a great night for the Scottish home talent. My question involves one of the homegrown talents in Stevie Ray. He chooses to fight out his contract and finished on a loss. Does the UFC still try to keep a fighter who is 5-2 and two in the most stacked division in the UFC, or is he giving his league, leaving papers? The guy is a massive in Scotland and a big draw for Scottish fans, uh, but what will, be, will that be enough to keep him on the roster? Thanks. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think that it brings us kind of back to that same uh, issue of the different calculations that go into an event like this, because, yeah, sure, you really want Stevie Ray around, when you're doing a show in Glasgow, then again, how many of those shows are you doing? You know, how, how big of a loss to the overall roster would it be if you're the UFC? If you're like, well, we don't have the quite the same pop with the Scottish fans now. Is that enough? I mean, I don't know if that's everything that will keep Stevie Ray in the UFC, though, either. Like, he's coming off back-to-back -back wins over Ross Pearson and Joe Lozon, which is, is not too shabby, even if the Pearson win was just a split decision, right? Like... You know, there's there's a lot of guys in that 155-pound weight class that would probably really like to have back-to-back -back wins over those two guys. And then he goes out and gets stopped in the first round by Paul Felder uh, this past weekend. But Stevie Ray still has a reputation as a pretty exciting guy. And I think if you're going to look for the upside on Stevie Ray, it's that he's only 27 years old. And as uh, as is mentioned here in the email by Peter Meir, he's 5-2 and two in the UFC in this division, which is also not too shabby. Like... Uh, I don't think that it's a given that he gets cut, even this, even if this was the last fight on his contract. I just he ain't, he's probably not going to get a pay raise, right? Coming out of this, so well, see, then, maybe then it becomes a situation of could Stevie Ray make more money just staying home or fighting for someone at home, right? Not just 
literally stay And see, that's the question is if it's a situation where you fought out your contract, it's who else is going to bid for you. Uh, because, you know, we saw, like we talked about last week, Gegard Mousasi uh, exiting the UFC, feeling like his contract offer wasn't good enough because there was somebody else willing to bid for his services and bid pretty well. And you just don't know how many guys that can be the case for. I mean, like we also said, fighting out your contract has become a lot more normal now. And so uh, not quite as big a deal just to hear that a guy fought out his contract and lost his last fight there. The UFC is probably getting a little more used to that. So it's not as if you know, you're completely damned after making that gamble and having it not go for you. But there's also a question of who can you have to to bid against the UFC for your services at this point uh, where it might actually do you some good. I just want to read you the list of nicknames listed for Stevie Ray. There's a list? On his Wikipedia page. Okay. Well, first of all, Stephen, and then in quotes, Stevie Ray. Oh, all right. So we're doing the Gunner Gunny Nelson kind of thing. And then nickname. under other names, it says Braveheart. All right. Which is Heard a little, that one, yeah. A little on the nose, I would think, for a Scottish <laughs> fighter. Then you get to Stevie fucking Ray. Oh, nice. Which I'm in favor of that. Then the last one, Ben, and I think we might need a translation on this. It says, The We Doug. What? Spelled, we, spelled we, Doug. As in small, okay, yeah, I get that W-E-E. part. W E E. Doug, D U G. The huh. We Doug. All right. Well, I assume we have some Scottish listeners who could help us out there. He also has three teams listed. Higher level MMA, TriStar Gym, and the Dinky Ninjas. Oh, the Dinky Ninjas. Yeah. So either someone has had some fun with Stevie Ray's Wikipedia page or the Scots out there listening to the co-main event podcast have some explaining to do. Yeah. Right? Uh, I'm curious about the Stevie fucking Ray one. Is that entire thing listed as his nickname? Yes. Okay. Except there's a uh, uh, an asterisk in where the U should be in fucking. Okay. So it's like self-edited. All right. Family show over on Wikipedia. But then if that's your nickname, then your name would be Stevie, Stevie fucking Ray, Ray? Because <laughs> that's a problem. I mean, I think you could work around it. There's probably a workaround there. Maybe, I mean, if anybody could work around it, I believe it, that person would be you, Chad. And Bruce Buffer. And Bruce Buffer. Last question this week comes to us from Derek O'Doul's. I assume heir to the O'Doul's fortune. Yeah. For non-alcoholic beer. He writes, Definitely. Massive fortune. Guys, we all love Joanne Calderwood, but her loss to Cynthia Calvillo after missing weight, no less, was her second in a row in the UFC, and one where I'm not sure she looked quite up to what you might call a UFC caliber fighter. Is this Cynthia lady really that special, or is my beloved JoJo not long for the octagon-shaped world? You know, she she lost that fight. It was a but it was a close fight, and she didn't look bad in that fight. We've seen her look far worse. I, the question for me with Joanne Calderwood always is, what was her preparation like? Because we've seen her have some vast differences in performance, depending on from the sound of it, just how much time and money she was able to invest in her own training camp. And this one, you know, she missed weight, but then. You know, you think she would be one of those fighters where a 125-pound division would be a great gift to her uh, if that really gets going. So, you know, it's a, probably a tough weight cut for her anyway. And then to go in there against Cynthia Calvillo, who clearly the UFC is pretty hot on. You saw the, the pre-fight hype packages. It seemed like the UFC is really hoping that she'll pan out. And uh, Joanne Calderwood fought her pretty close. You know, it just seems like as soon as she got taken down every time she was in trouble. But uh, when they were on the feet, a couple things go differently for her. I could see her winning that decision. Three and two now for Joanne Calderwood in her last five fights. She does have the one win 
over Valerie Letourneau in what was, remember this? They did a one flyweight fight in June of last year. And uh, Joanne Calderwood won that uh, via third round TKO. So she's got that going for her if the 125-pound women's division does, in fact, take off. But now these back-to-back losses uh, to Jessica Andrade, which I guess is nothing to sneeze at, right? And uh, now Cynthia Calvillo, who, as you mentioned, is a person uh, that people seem pretty high on as a prospect. So I agree with you. I don't think it seems quite like the end of the road for Joanne Calderwood, but the profile that's emerging of her is not necessarily as a person who's suddenly going to wake up and... and uh, you know, beat Joanna Jacek and become strawweight champion. No, but I do think that uh, if the the promise of the 125 pound division will give her at least a little bit of new life, like we've talked about that before, that if you change weight classes, if you have that opportunity, it'll give you a little bit of a clean slate for people to be like, okay, so maybe this was the whole issue. Let's sit back and see what you can do there. Um, you won't get that slack for very long if it doesn't pan out, but I, I think. Everybody likes seeing her fight enough. She's interesting enough and uh, has enough fan support now that nobody's anxious to see her get dumped or anything. Also, have you? I don't know if you looked at her Wikipedia page. She also has a ton of nicknames. Maybe this is a Scottish thing. Maybe the Scottish fighters just accrue nicknames. Uh, for instance, here's the list. Her her list is actually longer. She yeah, she has she has a, a good collection. Of- Jojo, the Whispering Assassin, which I like. I like that. Yeah, Whispering Assassin you like? Yeah. Yeah, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, Cyborginho, okay. um, which right. not not what I would have guessed. Uh, Bad Mofo Jojo, which uh-huh. I think is her official uh, self-chosen nickname. And then Dr. Neville. I've heard and, that one. I think that's her, her Twitter handle. Oh, I really? I believe it's at Dr. Neville, but I'm not sure. Not totally sure. That one's kind of sweet. I mean, it it's, yeah. it's a little bit of a dated reference at this point. Um, and you also it's one of those where... It, the nickname works a lot better when you see it spelled out because it's knee, as in your knee, knee you in the face Um Doesn't work that well if you just hear it necessarily. But uh, I like that she gives you a lot of options to choose from. Oh, yeah, me too. I mean, the, hey, man, there's there's no one out here trying to disagree with the idea that Joanne, Joanne Calderwood is, is super popular. It seems like MMA fans uh, like everything she has to offer, which includes a healthy list of nicknames. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about Cynthia Calvillo, though, Ben. 6-0 and now as a professional, 11-1 and if you count all of her uh, amateur fights. 3-0 uh, and in the UFC, had two stoppages in a row, and now beats Joanne Calderwood by decision in, in what is probably her highest profile win to date. Uh, you know, she's a person who obviously is still developing as a, as a fighter, despite the fact that she's 30 years old. Um, and, and is a little bit green with just six professional fights. And she doesn't seem like a person that would be able to stack up with uh, Joanna Champion on the feet. But those ground skills are nothing to sneeze at. And that's the kind of thing that uh, makes a fighter interesting, especially in that division where, uh, where yeah, Jacek has just been dominating people on the feet. But if she has a weakness, maybe it's somebody that could take her to the ground and, and use these these submission skills that Cynthia Calvillo has to 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 stop her and not end up having to go 25 minutes with a person like, uh, like Joanna Jacek who just turns into a buzzsaw after a certain amount of time. Yeah. Well, and I think 
clearly uh, there's a little bit of a promotional push for her coming out of Team Alpha Male. Uh, we've seen Team Alpha Male's ability, especially uh, with female fighters at times, to be able to seize on somebody and say, all right, this person is worth investing a lot of time and energy in, and maybe there'll be a payoff down the road. She seems like somebody that both the UFC and Team Alpha Male have made that uh, decision about. What I question is, uh, you know, you mentioned the extensive amateur experience, but then still, you know, this is only her, her sixth fight as a professional, and she's really getting them in quickly. This is like her fourth fight this year, third fight in the UFC this year, which I think I saw uh, Mike Bond, uh, my colleague at MMA Junkie, tweet that she became the first uh, fighter to get three U uh, UFC fights uh, in 2017 so far, which in July is pretty impressive. Uh, so she is getting a lot of experience really quickly. Um, she's also 30, right? So it's not like there, she has a ton of time or just endless time in order to learn and grow. And it seems like that's one of the things we see repeatedly in this division is that if you're going to make a run at, you know, up the ranks, you don't have to run that far before you find people talking about you and a, a potential fight with Joanna Champion, which is scary if you're not there yet. Because there, there's a big jump between like beating up some people kind of in the middle of the pack and then you get up there, especially if uh, promotionally a lot of people like what you have to offer, and then things could get serious in a hurry. And you wonder how quickly she could be ready for a fight like that. Yeah, not tomorrow, I don't think. Uh, you mentioned... Well, tomorrow's a Wednesday, man. Oh, come on. Well, it's, I mean, there's UFC fights happening all the time. All right. right. Wednesday she night could, contender series? She could just show up. And right. Probably. Yoenia Jacek would be there. Uh, you mentioned three three fights in the UFC this year, four fights in 2017. Get this, though, Ben. Uh, Cynthia Calvillo turned pro August 27th, 2016. So she actually has all six of her fights since then. In like one 12-month span, yeah, basically. Yeah, one calendar year, basically. Yeah, one 11-month span, pretty so that's, much. That's a lot. By anyone's standards. That's Cowboy Cerrone territory right there. Again, though, she had as many amateur fights as she's had now pro fights. So that could be a little misleading. But yeah, you're right. It's, when she went pro, really put the foot down on yeah, the gas. Torrid pace. Torrid pace. Uh, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and, no, and, and notes that we miss all of the mornings that we're not recording the podcast. Uh, it's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, where to even start on the topic of Conor McGregor's world tour with Floyd Mayweather, uh, which went four days last week and wrapped up on Friday in London and provided a million different avenues that we could discuss it. Uh, I mean, let's just start very big picture and then we'll start talking about some of the, the uh, specifics of what went on here. Did this help promote the fight for you? Did you come out of this thing like, man, I can't wait to watch these two 
Warriors go at it August the 26th at T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada. You know, I don't think that's the question as if it did it work to promote the fight for me because sure. I'm in that segment of the population where you don't really have to work too hard to to promote this fight. I think what it did succeed in doing is reaching out to at least capture the awareness, if not attention, of the broader audience, which is the one that it's going to depend on to break all those pay-per-view records. Because that's what the real hope is here, is that you are combining two different pay-per-view buying audiences, for one thing, uh, and getting them to all buy the same pay-per-view. So right there, you're, you're on track to do some pretty big numbers. But you're also creating a cultural event that is big enough that the people who don't normally watch any fighting pay-per-views will consider watching this one. And I think it did do that because I think it just created enough constant noise in the news cycle uh, between two people who are famous enough that even non-fight media likes to write about them that, and they did enough outrageous things during it that it at least gets people talking. And that was the goal. You know, they didn't all end up saying nice stuff, but that's not really the point. That's not how you work in fight promotion. Like you see... Uh, stuff ends up on ESPNW, where basically uh, Sarah Spain writing a column like kind of condemning the nature of this trash talk. And that is part of the goal of this press tour is to get stuff like that written in those places that would normally not really deal with this. I do want to talk about the nature of that trash talk uh, in a minute here. But I also wanted to, to point out, since you just brought it up, that you're trying to uh, you're trying to combine what might be two different pay-per-view audiences and then get mainstream people on top of that. One of the things that was really evident to me early on here was kind of like a clash of subcultures yes. in all of these press conferences because these press conferences, for the most part, uh, were set up in a very traditionally like boxing style press conference sort of way where you have Steven Espinoza from Showtime, Leonard Elby, Ellerby from Mayweather Promotions, uh, and a couple, you know, uh, hoteliers, uh, <laughs> some magnates come out and like make some introductory, uh, speeches, which we're not used to seeing no. from the MMA side of things. And yet, also had a musical act and um, dancing yeah, girls. Yeah, a couple of them, yeah. right? Aloe Black was there. Uh, did Drake perform in Toronto? I think he was there, but I don't think just, he performed. Just hanging out. Uh, these preference conferences took place surrounded by MMA fans. So, like the moment that you start in on the on the boxing pomp and circumstance, like just booze was all you got. So, like one of the things that was interesting to me uh, was this sort of like clash of subcultures of of drunken MMA fans sitting in for the first time on a boxing press conference. Right. Wondering where the new metal at. Right. And did this, why aren't we listening to face the pain right now? Motherfucker. I, I think we would be remiss if we did not say that Dana White and his epic sunburn were like, uh, <laughs> kind of like highlights of this thing. Right. Cause Dana White comes up to the podium. And if you're going to appreciate Dana White as an MMA fan at any point, maybe it's this. Yes. Like after all of the other dudes give their speeches, he just comes up and shouts into the microphone the reigning defending 155 pound pound champion yeah. of the UFC, Conor McGregor. And then we get McGregor straight up there, which right. cuts like right a, to it. It's like a breath of fresh air at that point. You know, I, I wrote about this similar thing because I was reading uh, in the LA Times today, there's a, a interesting thing from a writer talking to Ron Shelton, the guy who co-wrote The Great White Hype, which we've referenced before, is having a lot of similarities with what's happening here. Also wrote and directed uh, Bull Durham, 
uh, my favorite sports movie of all time. A lot of great, and, um, White Men Can't Jump. A lot of great sports movies. And him saying basically, like, yeah, I see a lot of, a lot of similarities between this and that movie, which is why I won't watch it. Uh, I've already, I've been to the carnival and I've seen the, the, the two-headed lady, the bearded lady and the two-headed man or whatever. Um, and so I'm not really interested. And in writing about that and kind of comparing, you know, though, what was going on in that movie where it was hoping, like, all right, white guy versus a black guy and that will help get in all these people who aren't really boxing fans and in that movie it worked you know you see all these yeah they got the scene where the little old lady goes up and you know puts like her money through the casino cage and says like five dollars on the clean cut white boy but that's working on another level here because of that clash of cultures because it's like the mma people and the boxing people we've talked about it as people have kind of failed to appreciate well, especially MMA people fail to appreciate sometimes that boxing is a completely different sport, but they're also just such different worlds, like with different just expectations of how all this stuff is supposed to work. Um, and then though, I wonder, like we talked about the, hey, how about the nature of the trash talk when they start to get into this stuff? For one thing, it's just, if you ever wondered what your tolerance is for how many times you can watch two grown men call each other bitches, uh, this one will really test you. Yeah. Because that one was over and over again. And you could see them ratcheting it up, realizing like we need to shock more and more as this thing goes on. You can't just do the same thing in Toronto that you did in Los Angeles. you got to take it further. And Floyd Mayweather even mentioned that at one point where he was going to talk some shit to Conor McGregor and said, no, I'll save that one for the next press conference. And you could see, and maybe it was that pressure to ratchet it up that helped it get a little bit ridiculous yeah. when you start getting into uh, racial stuff and like, you know, using gay slurs against each other. Yeah, one of the things that I thought hurt this tour was that you send these guys out there, like you said, back to back to back to back days, four days, uh, and it just gets repetitive. Even a guy like Conor McGregor, who is so quick on his feet and, and you know, so so good at the trash talk part of this game, you can see he was kind of tapped out, that he was sort of out of material by the time we roll into London uh, with the boxing ring set up in the middle of the arena so that they can walk around and talk to each other. Uh, and so that I think like hurt the overall success of this, at least for me. And like, again, speaking as a, a person inside the bubble, a person that had to watch every second of this thing, uh, it got pretty tiresome toward the end. And I don't know if that's the case for a more casual person that only caught the highlights, right? Cause they didn't have to, first of all, they didn't sit through the 90 minutes every day where these two guys were, were getting their outfits on uh, <laughs> right. and, and showing up late to the press conference. So yeah, but for me, it got tiresome near the end. I don't know if for people that, that just saw the highlights on sports center or whatever, if it had that same effect, but like, as you said, you find out what your tolerance is. And to me, the racism stuff, the uh, homophobic stuff, the misogyny, which like the misogyny almost flies under the radar, which is such a sad commentary, right? Well, like because we're so used to these guys going out there and calling each other bitches from start to finish that like that doesn't even register well and if you're going to watch a floyd mayweather fight you already have to make your peace or decide to completely ignore his history with domestic violence so you're right that that's you're already uh shown a, a somewhat high tolerance for that just to get in the door uh you know what though the race thing that changed for me over the week because you doubled down on it yeah well because when you first hear the stuff uh, you know, where he, and he had been called out, what, in the New York Post or the New York Daily News or something, uh, where they'd said, like, oh, look, look at these things he said before to Brazilian opponents and stuff and to the Diaz brothers, like, Conor McGregor is a bigot, which struck me as like, come on, man. Maybe you don't realize, like, 
what like when he's in there like hey i'll ride into your favela and then on a horse and chop your heads off or something i'm like yeah all right not really cool uh if you're in the boardroom talking to each other but i see he's trying to promote a fight here and he's using the like, the broad brush language of fight promotion i'm not willing to necessarily extend that to think that the guy is himself personally a racist uh and then when he goes out there with floyd mayweather and at first you know it's like little stuff and it, it even seemed like maybe uh, he was being treated a little bit unfairly at one point when he made the comment about Rocky Three, and he was like, oh, is that the one with the celebrities and the, the dancing monkeys in the gym? And everybody was like immediately pointing to that scene where Apollo takes Rocky into the gym with all the black fighters, which is not the scene I thought he was talking about. I thought he was talking about the earlier scene where Rocky's gym has become a circus, and you know there's a bunch of like crazy stuff going on in there, and, and Mickey is telling him to get the hell out of there and go back to the old gym, but it seemed like people had already passed that point of giving him the benefit of the doubt because of previous comments. And then he can't go out there in the next press conference and say like, Hey, I'm sorry. I believe that we are all like, uh, you know, children of God or whatever. Like he, so he has to do Conor McGregor ish about it and then doubles way the hell down on it. Uh, where you end up like sending a message to black women by gyrating your hips and just like, now I'm just embarrassed for you. I'm embarrassed for you and I'm embarrassed for all of us because this is the thing, like all the boxing people used to say about MMA, it's a bunch of uh, white guys and skinheads and, and then you, you send this, he's our representative out there and you think, oh God, this just does not help to uh, reverse that narrative at all. Right. It's embarrassing and like if I were a fan just thinking about buying this pay-per-view, the thing that I come back to, like if I had indeed sat through all of these press conferences, like I would have been turned off by the sort of casual racism at the beginning and the like the the end-to-end misogyny, the, the, the just like pervasive nature of it. And then like you get to the very end uh, where uh, – Floyd Mayweather drops the homophobic slur on Conor McGregor. I don't know that I would buy the thing, man. I, at some point, and like this is just me, my own sensibilities, I feel like I would have been sitting at home thinking, you know what? I'm not going to give this thing a hundred bucks. Yeah. And I don't know if it will, if that will, if it's going to be that way for, for a large portion of the like fight pay-per-view buying public. But for me, it just like, it did ultimately end up being a turnoff, which I think is, is, is sad, especially for Conor McGregor, because you feel like he's so good at that at the promotional end of it that those kind of like enormous mistakes sort of overshadow the rest of it for me, which I think is is uh, unfortunate for him. Well, you know, I was talking to my wife about it this morning when she was saying how she was surprised to see so many on like Facebook, so many people she knows through different avenues, women uh, mostly, who were aware of this fight and talking about it. And the thing that they were saying was, I hate both these guys. And But not saying it in a, I hate both these guys and therefore there's no way I will have any interest in this fight. But kind of like, my interest has been kind of uh, pulled in this direction because of how much I've come to hate these guys who I just kind of found out about through this kinds of stuff. So, I don't know. I mean, I get, I think that part of it is that we have given a pass to fight promotion antics to a certain extent. We'll let you get away with a little more there when you know you're trying to sell us on a fist fight between two people on pay-per-view. And then they have to take it a little further than that because this is supposed to be the biggest pay-per-view of all time. And so you get to some point where you're wondering, are they just kind of consciously trying to crank up the dial so much that the culture at large cannot ignore them? 
Uh, and if so, and if we all realize that that's what's happening, is there any line anymore? Is there anything you cannot say to each other? The, or is it that if you say the things you cannot say, it will only end up increasing the buy rate? Yeah, like if, if Conor McGregor went out there and just straight dropped the N-word, does that mean game over on this pay-per-view? Or does that mean 8 million buys? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, for me, another thing that undermined this, Ben, was like the attempt to sell this fight on some animosity where I'd, I'm not buying that it's really there. No. I don't feel like Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather are really – uh, that they really don't like each other or that they're even rivals really in a, in that way. I feel like when it gets to be fight night and they're both in there, competitive fires are going to take over. We'll see the best from both guys, et cetera, et cetera. But during this press tour, it seemed like they both just loved it. Like they enjoyed this thing way more than any, anything else or anybody else. Yeah, just no, them up there working their shtick on I, the mic. I think you were right to say that they kind of secretly like each other or at least have like a, affinity and appreciation for each other as far as what they each are doing for each other what they're both bringing to the table because i think they've both been in some fights in the past before where they had to carry a lot of the promotional load now you're there with somebody who at least in the promotions department is kind of your equal and they do seem to at least appreciate that aspect of it and you're right that you're not going to really sell me on like some kind of long-standing bad blood thing which i think is just the, the wrong way to go with it but one of the things that did get weird for me at times was when they would each keep coming back to the money, you know, which is that's what we're really about here is this is a fight about the money. And yet when they keep talking about the money and how much money there's going to be and how much money they're making and everything, you're reminded every once in a while, oh, that's right. That's our money that they're talking about. That's what that's the, the money in the, the backpack and all that other kind of stuff, uh, you know, holding up the hundred million dollar checks. That's our money that we are paying for them. So it's like seeing these guys brag about how they're kind of fleecing you uh, and they're both just loving it. That's when if you think too long about it, you'll you'll get sad. So maybe maybe you don't even want to think too long about it. It continues to be the paradox of this fight for me that not a single person on this earth who is not who does not stand to actually profit from it can say with a straight face that this will be a good competitive or fun to watch fight. And yet it's been preordained that it's, that it will be a billion dollar fight and the biggest fight, the richest fight in the history of combat sports, which again, as I think I've said before about mixed martial arts and the sort of like spectacle nature of a lot of the attractions, how does that work? How, how is it that the fights that we expect to be the least competitive or the worst fights end up being the biggest fights, end up being like the fights that make the most money. I don't think it will ever make sense to me, even though I, I in theory, understand like the personality angle of the fight game. It's just every time I think about it, it just it almost gives me a headache. Yeah, you know, well, that's another thing that I noticed in that LA Times thing I referenced earlier with Ron Shelton, uh, as he talks about how combat sports and boxing in particular is still pretty... Uh, primal and primitive compared to the other major sports that, you know, the NBA, the NFL, all there feels very corporate and that fight sports is still kind of the only one where it seems like completely wild and like as just the sanctioning for this fight would suggest barely regulated that and that I think maybe is one of its lasting appeals is that every other kind of sports event, it just feels like it's, it's very inside a certain box. 
Uh, this one, it can attract attention by it being just completely batshit crazy. And there aren't that many great batshit crazy sports events that you can really be drawn to anymore. And more than a month. Jesus Christ. Before they actually climb in the ring and, and get this thing done. So where do we go from here over those next five or six weeks? I don't know, but I reckon we're going to end up talking about this fight again. Uh, as for right now, though, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, enough with the preamble. Let's get right down to the topic that everybody tuned in here for this week. Santiago Ponzanibio. Woo! And you can just feel the hair stand up on the back of your neck talking about this one, huh? Straight out of Argentina. Goes rolling in there. The Gentaboa uh, puts the hurt on Gunnar Nelson with a little help from an eye poke. Uh, but gets a brutal first round knockout stoppage. And now the sky's the limit, right? Uh, you got your, your Santiago Ponzinibbio poster up yet, or did you take it to get it framed? You know what? Legitimately, after he got this win, I did feel kind of bad that a long time ago when we were discussing the the Reebok gear uh, deal with the UFC back when it first got instituted. And, and remember, part of the deal back then was that fighters were going to get compensated when people bought their individual fight kits, which I don't know if that's still the deal. I assume it is, but like when we talked about it, we actually used Santiago Ponzanibio as an example to say, ain't nobody going to go out to the website and buy themselves a Santiago Ponzanibio fight kit. Still true. Still probably true, but now five wins in a row in the welterweight division. He's got wins over Court McGee and Zach Cummings and now uh, Gunnar Nelson. So uh, a bunch of people that we've at least heard of. And Gunnar Nelson, a guy who for a long time now has been ticketed for at least potential stardom at 170 pounds, frankly, hard not to like what Santiago Ponzinibbio is doing out there, especially uh he gets on the mic, comes to the press conference, and he seems to have some stuff to say as well. Like So uh perhaps because his name is Santiago Ponzinibbio, I misjudged him at the beginning. Shortchanged the man, you might say, Ben. I mean, the I already saw the... Ponzi scheme uh, themed nicknames propping up. I like it. There's a lot you can do with it. Maybe it, it w might be a difficult one to explain uh, to him in a way that would get him on board with it. Uh, I could see why a lot of people maybe would not want to be known as the scheme uh, for their nickname, but I think it's kind of awesome. You're right, though. You know, he did a lot with this moment. I still, though, after this fight, was sitting there and going, what was this a fight about? What, what what were we doing here? Was this, like, this was the main event, right? Which usually is the one that you're staying up late for. This one is the one you're going into the early afternoon for. Uh, but it also, even on this fight card, just kind of felt like it was the fight that happened last. It did not seem to have any special, like, is it is it to eliminate possible contenders, to establish future top contenders? Because it's not like anybody's saying, like, all right, Santiago Ponzinibbio in line for a title shot now. Nobody's saying that. Uh, so what did this what did this do? Well, I think it would have been different had Gunnar Nelson won, right? Because right? then you right. would add a dude who was four and one in his last five, and his only loss would be to Demi and Maya, who's obviously the number one contender at this point for the welterweight title. And so I think if you talk about what it means, you got to go into it with the idea that Gunnar Nelson was thought to to 
be have the upper hand to be the guy who was going to win this. The fact that that Santiago Ponzinibbio wins it, I think, uh, is interesting. I think it doesn't portend good things for Gunny Nelson. I think maybe we can talk about that in, in a minute. You're right to say I think that it doesn't like punch Ponzinibbio's ticket to the top of the welterweight division, but uh, I feel more interested in watching him fight again now than I would than I did you know the day before this happened. So uh, it's certainly it's it's better for him than the alternative, I guess you could say. And, and like, uh, seem it, it makes Santiago Ponzinibbio an interesting fellow in this division. I think a guy that you want to see fight again, and a guy you want to see how high he can fly. Um, and I don't think that that's meaningless. Although, as you said, like it doesn't necessarily feel of great importance in retrospect. Yeah, and I think, though, let's talk a little bit about the fight itself, where Gunnar Nelson goes out there and is doing his Gunnar Nelson thing. Looks like he, he kind of catches Santiago Ponzinibbio early um, and then gets poked in the eye and afterwards says that he is kicking himself for continuing on there. I mean, again, he's assuming that he could just stop the fight on his own due to an eye poke, which in practical terms you usually can in MMA, um, but instead goes after him and ends up getting KO'd there. Uh, does that make you think at all differently about the fight or are you just, are you more likely to get behind the scheme because he's a Dundasso guy? Uh, I would have to go back and watch it again. Cause I didn't necessarily notice the eye pokes as it was happening though. I know that, uh, John Kavanaugh's posted a video is my understanding highlighting the, the eye pokes. So I'll probably take a look at that, but it's for me, it's like, I didn't notice. So, uh, I started to see Gunnar Nelson have some success on the feet. Like he landed a couple of strikes and I started to think to myself, well, I hope he doesn't get like overconfident here to think that like this is his path to victory. I think that like if you're Gunnar Nelson, you want to put this thing on the mat and get a submission and get out of there. And then, of course, moments later, he gets lit up. I don't know. And I, it probably wasn't a situation where he got too confident. But at the same time, I was at home like feeling nervous for him. Like it's the weird feeling where as a guy starts to do good, you start to feel nervous for him. Like don't mess around too long doing what you're doing that's because you watch a lot of pro wrestling that's right that's why I that see is this, i could see this we were, we were on to the shine and i could see the swerve coming down broad street uh and then the next thing you know he's he's wrestling with the ref yeah well and uh doing a pretty good job of it too getting out of side control there on yeah, the ref so, which I, when i was watching that on the replay uh it uh, makes you appreciate what kind of a scary moment that might be if you're the referee Gunnar Nelson has just been knocked out. He's though still Gunnar Nelson, and he has become briefly convinced that you are his opponent. <laughs> and he has just reversed you out of top position inside control. And you kind of have to sit there and hope that either your defenses are good enough to fight off a wounded Gunnar Nelson, he snaps out of it, or somebody else gets in the cage and helps you out. Because otherwise, man, it'd be a damn shame for you to get snatched up in a Kimura while Gunnar Nelson is is on Queer Street. That's who you need, a ref for the ref. I guess that's why they're, they're, those aren't the only three people there. Yes. There's some ringside officials there. Ben, the internet tells me that Gentaboa means good people in Portuguese. Huh. Do you think that's, do you think that's what we're going for with Santiago Ponzinibbio's nickname? Because I'll tell you, I like it if it is, if that's what we're going for. If basically his nickname is just like the nice guy? Yeah, good, it makes him sound like kind of like a mafioso or something. <laughs> Santiago Ponzinibbio is good people. Yeah. A friend of ours. <laughs> Uh, let's talk real briefly for just a couple minutes about Gunnar Nelson. Obviously a guy who we've been, the, the community at large, I guess, has been expecting kind of big things from Gunnar Nelson. And 28 years old at this point, 20 fights under his belt, 
Uh, he's only got the three losses, Rick Story, Damian Maia, and Santiago Ponzinibbio, but are, is it time to adjust our what we view as the ceiling for this guy in the wake of this loss, or is this just the, the somebody got caught? Well, the thing is, if you forced me to, I could come up with a yeah, but kind of scenario for all three of those losses. Because he lost that split decision to Rick Story. It was a close fight, and Rick Story is awkward and can make a lot of people look bad. Not not the uh, terrible loss there. Then he goes out there and kind of gets schooled by Demian Maya. Hey, man, it's Demian fucking Maya. He's going to school a whole lot of people. You didn't get submitted by him. You, you, you went the distance with him, even though he kind of gave you a lesson fit for uh, Demian Maya's jiu-jitsu for MMA VHS tape. But still, like a learning experience. Uh, then he wins two in a row, and then he goes out there and gets knocked out uh, by Santiago Ponzinibbio by kind of rushing in perhaps after an eye poke, perhaps after just feeling that he was having uh, some unexpected early success on the feet and getting a little carried away, um, and so then he gets knocked out. I don't. None of those really scream out to me, this guy was never who you thought he was. They just kind of scream out to me, this can happen. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you tell me Gunnar Nelson can't reel off four or five wins in a row here, I could buy that. Right, that's the thing, right? This... This uh this loss isn't necessarily the period on the end of the sentence for Gunnar Nelson, but it kind of makes what happens next important, in my opinion, for Gunnar Nelson. And he's still right there in the thick of things, uh, surrounded by guys like Carlos Condit, Donald Cerrone, Neil Magny, Colby Covington, Rafael Dos Anjos in those welterweight rankings. So, like, he can still pick up a good fight. He can still pick up a competitive fight, a difficult fight for Gunnar Nelson. And it kind of feels to me like he needs to win the next one. Yeah, it also, I think, depends on how much the UFC strategy is going to shift because that seems like we're seeing these rumblings of it now, right? Where the UFC before was looking at the its global fucking domination strategy. And when you're over on that other side of the Atlantic, Gunnar Nelson is a main event fighter. Pretty much, you know, whether you're in the UK, uh, whether you're, you know, somewhere uh, like, you know, you look at where he's fought, Glasgow, London, Rotterdam. Uh, a couple in Vegas, then before it was Stockholm and Dublin. Uh, you know, he carries a little more weight over there, and especially because the UFC tends to put on a little more watered-down cards over there. And you wonder, if the UFC decides, like, hey, we're not really doing that anymore. We don't. We have lost a little bit of faith in our European expansion strategy. Then does your calculation for what you can do with Gunnar Nelson change? I don't know. That's something I'd be interested to see. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number three. Ben, uh, I know we didn't want to let this entire episode of the co-main event podcast pass without mentioning Yoel Romero's fine work on social media this past week, where he posted a video call-out of Michael Bisping, filmed on location, I might add, in his home country of Cuba, that was so awesome and amazing that it seemed like the real version of those WWF vignettes that they filmed to introduce Razor Ramon in the early 90s, where he's like walking past a fruit stand and picks up an apple and takes a bite out of it. Uh, <laughs> this, like, you get the vibe from Yoel Romero here that he's like that, only the real deal, and therefore much, much, much scarier. So I guess it's the rare positive, are you fucking kidding me, this week, both to Yoel Romero out there in the all-white suit with, I believe, white shoes and no socks, which, classic look. Right Dr Dressing like Roy Jones in one of his rap music videos. But just just an all-around hearty, are you fucking kidding me, to Yoel Romero this week, who, if we gave him out, would win us some kind of social media award for this. 
fucking kidding an me? Oscar, a social media Oscar. Yeah, that's a real for thing. his portrayal of himself. <laughs> Yoel Romero, I while I love his fashion sense, it falls for me under the category of like there's a a look on a man that I think is an awesome look that I can never even attempt to pull off. Well, and it's been like that for a while, remember? Yeah. Like Yoel Romero has been showing up to post fight press conferences wearing sweet outfits since the beginning. Yeah. So this is not a new wrinkle. It's just an awesome one. Yeah. Fucking anyway, kidding what, me? What's your? Are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, you may have heard that I believe tonight the HBO Real Sports episode um, that features a segment on uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the the Chechen strongman, the Chechen sort of dictator, uh, is supposed to air on HBO. And in it, they focus apparently heavily on his, the way he has used MMA uh, to uh, kind of consolidate his his grip. Uh, both just on power in Chechnya and on the, the psychology of the people there and what it means there. And we've seen, you know, already the, a lot of connection between Kadyrov and the world of the UFC. You know, you've got some of the, the fighters from Chechnya now signing with the UFC. Uh, you've also got a lot of UFC fighters who have been paid to go over there and pal around with Kadyrov, like we've talked about before. Guys like Chris Weidman, Fabricio Verdum, Frank Mir. Um, and, then you have this quote, um, which goes along where he is like flippantly laughing about the well-reported purge of gay men in Chechnya, as if it's no big deal to be torturing and murdering uh, gay men in your in your area. And then he quote this quote: "We propose that UFC and Akhmat, the the Akhmat fight team, face off in a tournament." Kudirov said, "And we'll have we'll see who has the strongest fighters. I think it would be quite a spectacle. They would fight to the end, a fight to the death." Huh. Now, my are you fucking kidding me goes out not so much to this guy who, if you were paying attention at all to the multiple news reports, I mean, the New York Times had a thing that came out on the same day that New York hometown boy Chris Weidman returned, I believe, from Chechnya. The New Yorker has looked at it. It's not, not news that this is a bad guy. But my are you fucking kidding me goes out to the fighters who have been taking money to go over there and hang out with this dude. Explain yourselves. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben... We press the fast forward button a little bit now and look ahead to this Saturday, UFC on Fox 25, the main event of which is Chris Weidman versus Kelvin Gastelum. And this really, to me, shapes up as a must, must win for Chris Weidman, coming off three losses in a row, uh, all by stoppage to Luke Rockhold, Yoel Romero, and Gegard Mousasi. Uh, interesting and, and a reminder, I guess, how slippery a slope this sport can be at times. Second half of 2013, it sure looked like Chris Weidman was going to be a big part of the future of the middleweight division after those back-to-back wins over Anderson Silva and then had a couple of uh, uh, successful title defenses in 2014, 2015. But now he has really hit the skids in a big way. Uh, Do you think this is one that Chris Weidman absolutely needs to win if we are going to go on thinking of him as a guy among the elite at 185 pounds. Yes, and that's kind of unfair considering that this string of losses, which 
that's why we think he needs to beat Kelvin Gastelum, right? It's not because Kelvin Gastelum is not a good fighter. Clearly he is, and clearly he can make a go of it at middleweight. But the reason it feels like Chris Weidman needs to win is because he's lost three in a row. And three in a row is where you start to get on really shaky territory. Four in a row is where uh, everybody kind of turns their backs on you. But you look at the three in a row who it was. You know, first it was Luke Rockhold where he lost his title, kind of, uh, you know, some questionable strategy against Luke Rockhold and he gets smashed. But hey, we all recognize Luke Rockhold is one of the best middleweights out there. Then he goes out there and fights UL Romero and seems to be on his way to winning the fight and then gets a little too predictable and catches a flying knee to the dome, which can always happen to you against UL Romero. Also another person we recognize as one of the best middleweights out there. Then he goes out there and has that questionable stoppage kind of referee screw up against Gegard Mousasi, which Kind of not your fault if you're Chris Weidman. Also, it's against Gegard Mousasi, another one of the best middleweights around. I mean, you're right now in this division where there are tons of guys where there's no shame really in losing to them because we all recognize that they're super good. And yet when you lose to them back to back to back like that, you really can't afford another one to a guy who hasn't yet established himself as that kind of a person in the middleweight division yet. Wouldn't it be shocking to think Chris Weidman less than a month removed from turning 33 years old would be, would have four losses in a row would be that far down. It's a, it's a plummet that like kind of seemed unthinkable to me when this dude was, was coming up and, and uh, was taking on Anderson Silva, like uh, with all the skills that Chris Weidman had in those early UFC fights and the way he had been talked about by Matt Sarah and Ray Longo as a, as a surefire future champion, it seemed like he was a guy that was going to hang onto that belt for a while and, and was going to be, like I said, a big part of this division. Uh, falling to four losses in a row would be a huge tumble. A Johnny Hendricks-esque tumble? I, well, I was going to say, I was going to compare it to Johnny Hendricks, but then as I was talking and I started thinking, I started started thinking, it'd be worse, wouldn't it? Like, maybe worse just in terms of, maybe not worse in terms of like, missing weight and 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 you know uh having people kind of poke fun at you all over the internets but like four losses in a row would be that would really be something yeah well and it would leave you with the question of where do you go from there because you fought three of the top best guys in the middleweight division but then you fight kelvin gastelum who is still uh fairly new to the division and is the favorite by the way a small favorite in this fight and if you can't beat him and you're a very recent champion, then you're in that tough zone where the UFC doesn't want to book you against scrubs because of you know, what what you've already established and often what you're making. And they need you to fight high-profile fighters because you're still a high-profile fighter. And yet, who who do you fight after Kelvin Gastelum if you're Chris Wyman? That doesn't feel like a kind of a, just a sad pairing. Anderson. <laughs> The spider, Silva. I kind of hate you for that suggestion, but I also kind of like it. The trilogy. Let's bring out the trilogy. <laughs> no, you're right though. Like this is a tough spot for Chris Weidman. And if you're the UFC, it's not like you're gonna tell Chris Weidman to kick rocks. You're not gonna turn Chris Weidman over to Scott Coker, right? Because Chris Weidman goes over there to Bellator, wins a million fights in a row, except for maybe if he has to fight Gegard Mousasi, uh, and he becomes a viable entity again to the extent that he was a, a, a viable promotable entity to begin with uh let's talk a little bit about kelvin gastelum who is not clearly not an easy guy for chris weidman to fight at this stage on the heels of those three losses uh gastelum should have three wins in a row 
Uh, he had that TKO win over Vitor Belfort in March of this year, overturned because Gastelum tested positive for marijuana. Uh, and he also had a performance of the night bonus for that one. So Kelvin Gastelum, as long as he can consistently make weight, uh, seems like a, a, a juggernaut so far in this division. And at 25 years old is a guy who I think we all consider to still be on the upswing. Uh, who do you got here, man? Like this is a, this is a fight I feel pretty excited to watch, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. I feel like style-wise, I want to go with Weidman. And the thing that gives me pause is I wonder what his psychology is like right now. Because you know Weidman's got to be thinking, I can't afford to lose this one. And Kelvin Gastelum's got to be going in there with a whole lot of confidence because of the momentum that he's built up so far. I wonder, you know, sometimes we've seen this in the past with fighters where losing begets losing because you, their mindset changes. You're basically going up there hoping not to strike out rather than going up there hoping to really get a hold of one. And I, I would be a little worried about what that's going to do to his mind because he has to go in there thinking like, especially after the Musasi fight, I could do really well and still lose this fight. I could have done everything wrong up to this point and still lose this fight, and I cannot afford to lose this fight. Therefore, what do you tell yourself? I, I'm still inclined to go with Weidman just because I think if he puts it all together and, and, and uses the full complement of his skill set, he ought to be able to beat Kelvin Gastelum with that. Um, but if you tell me Kelvin Gastelum just laces a left hand right down the pipe and knocks him out in some kind of weirdo fashion, I'd believe that too. I kind of agree with you, and I feel like that makes us sound like a couple of real Chris Weidman apologists up in here. <laughs> that could be. Right? Uh, but yeah, I kind of agree with you. I feel like if Chris Weidman fights the way that we think Chris Weidman can fight, he has a, a real good chance to win this. And, but I also agree that at the same, by the same token, if Kelvin Gaslam just came out and blew the guy's doors off, I wouldn't necessarily be shocked, although I think that that, uh, would point Chris Weidman in a, in a, in a difficult direction. I think then we would be a couple, months away from Chris Weidman changing camps and, and give cutting interviews saying he was going back to basics, bringing back the old Chris Weidman. Oh no. And then, uh, you know where that goes. Yep. Nowhere no, good. Nowhere that good. Uh, you got anything else you want to talk about for UFC on Fox 25, this fight, any of these other fights on the card? This is a little bit considering that it's on Fox kind of a, uh, low wattage yeah. card in terms of star power. Uh, in other words, a midsummer, uh, card maybe. Cause usually We've seen kind of a pattern with the Fox that usually they like to have at least one kind of high-profile women's fight on there, uh, and you don't see that. Um, you, you don't see a whole lot of the usual names that might jump out at you. Maybe they're asking where the hell Nate Diaz is, and only to be informed that Nate Diaz ain't doing this Fox stuff anymore. Uh, so that's kind of a bummer for them. But yeah, it does not look like we kind of got used to the Fox cards looking. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you got this fight card and then obviously a week from Saturday, UFC 214 with the Jones-Cormier rematch, which I think is one that uh, uh, we're all looking forward to. But then in the wake of that, man, you are really, if you're the UFC, essentially getting out of the way for the month of, of August. You are clearing the lane. Uh, so that for, you can cash your paycheck for doing nothing. Yeah. So, so uh, Mayweather and McGregor will have the entire month to do their thing. So if you're uh, a hardcore MMA UFC fan uh, and you are not interested in the theatrics of what is going to happen next month, like you need to make the most of this one and 214 and then uh, the, the couple of fight nights events you're going to get in August. Otherwise, it's going to feel like a long drought to you. Yes, it will. Anyway, let's do just saying stuff, Ben. And... Uh, 
Then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, do you remember not too long ago when Conor McGregor was talking about his future, looking into his crystal ball? And one of the things he predicted was that someday you would see the UFC in association with McGregor Promotions. Yeah, I do. And then he shows up for the first stop on this press tour, and you're looking at the little step and repeat banner behind everybody. Uh, you see Showtime, you see Mayweather Promotions. You don't see the UFC or Zufa anywhere on there, but you do see McGregor's. I don't know if it was McGregor Promotions or McGregor Entertainment, something along those lines. Uh, something we've really never kind of heard of before, and but it's right there alongside these other fairly established brands. I gotta say, while the fight itself may not be competitive, while the whole thing might end up making us feel like it was just a farce for a bunch of rich people to make more of our money, I'm just saying, at least in that part, he did what he said he was going to do. I got to respect that. Just saying. Just saying. You know, Conor McGregor has a way of saying stuff that we all look at him. We think, oh, he's just joking. And then a couple of years down the line, it turns out, oh, it really does say fuck you. The stripes on his suit <laughs> exactly. really do say fuck you. Such a great metaphor for his entire career. I thought he was kidding. No, he was literally saying that it says fuck you. Well, Ben, uh, this week, I'm just saying, I saw this quote from uh, the guy we just talked about a little bit in this last round, Anderson Silva, talking about his desire to rematch with Nick Diaz. I just want to read this quote from, from Anderson Silva from, uh, uh, was on MMAfighting.com. Uh, I believe Anderson Silva wrote it on his social media. He said, I believe this was one of the best fights in the history of this sport. With all my respect, Nick, let's show how it's done. I will, I will wait your reply. Maximum respect to the Diaz family. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, nah. <laughs> nah. You, you, you're still holding out hope for that trilogy, huh? With Chris Weidman. That's right. Yeah. Kind of Maximum awesome, respect. Though, that, that in his like Instagram post, Anderson Silva basically writes, I will await your reply. Like he's sending a, a handwritten letter in the 1800s. Yeah. He's going to sit in the drawing room and wait until uh, he hears news of a reply. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC on Fox 25. And then look ahead to UFC 214, Cormier versus Jones 2. We expect that to be a lot of fun. For right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. What do you think about this? What do you think if I go and get myself one of them tailored suits? Only uh, the pinstripes, can they, you know, like a, a happy message, you know? Something like, hello, dear friend. Doing great. Yeah. If it just says doing great. Doing great. Yeah. Looking good. Or take a page out of Santiago Ponce book and uh, it just says the good guy.